G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Absolutely, and good to be with you for today's topic, which I'm really excited about. We have forecasted on the last couple of episodes, and we're finally here now, Dad. We've called today's episode Flourishing with Flow, and obviously, yeah, flow is the topic that we're talking about, and I'm very excited to discuss this with you today, Dad, because I think it's something that both you and I have been very interested in almost independently of each other in in some ways. We've almost had a little bit of a different angle on it. So very much looking forward to unpacking that with you today. But just to give a bit of a brief overview at first, what are we going to be talking about? Well, flow is such a central concept to well-being. And it was developed by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote a book called Flow in about 1990. He'd written about it beforehand. But the experience of flow is basically when you're so engaged and immersed in what you're doing that you're barely aware of the passage of time. It's where the challenges that you face, your skills match those challenges and you're really tested and you're really immersed in the experience. But Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, he described lots of different ways that this concept of flow doesn't just relate to momentary experience that we'll talk about, for example, in sport, but it's also central to well-being more generally. And so it does relate to that positive psychology model of PERMA, something that adds to our positive affect, our engagement, relationships, meaning and achievement. So as we describe the different aspects of flow and how it might come up in our everyday life, people will get a sense of how that applies to the themes we've talked about in positive psychology. And and especially relevant because sadly, Csikszentmihalyi died late last year. And so it's acknowledging his legacy as well. Well, certainly. And yeah, it was when, when he did sadly pass away that we first thought about doing this topic. So it's been on our mind for a little while, but it is one that we wanted to do, I suppose, properly, for lack of a better term, in terms of when we you know had a little bit of a time to you know, as you say, read the book and get our head around it properly to, I suppose, be able to pay it the respect that it deserves in terms of, as you say, like it is such a central theme to well-being in psychology. And one of the things that I really enjoy about the aspect of flow and particularly talking about it for something like psychology is in many ways, I discovered flow coming through the aspect of creativity and sport. I think there's so much to do with creativity and sport that are to do with flow. And so as you say, there's so much that it's related to in terms of, I think, well-being and, and maintaining our wellness in some ways. And I think the more that we can get a sense of it and create flow for ourselves, and, and have an appreciation of where that comes into our life, the better off that we'll be. But there is this aspect to it, which it is kind of about flourishing as well. It's not just about kind of like some of the things that we speak about on the podcast in terms of putting strategies in place to maintain your wellness and maintain your well-being in certain ways. It seems to me that flow is something that we can look at to really almost go to that next level beyond, say, even just mitigating symptoms and you know avoiding mental illness and this sort of thing. It really is something that we can look at. And to me, yeah, it, it does seem to do a little bit with the mechanics of flourishing in a way. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. There are many principles behind flow that we'll talk about later and practical ways to gauge whether we're in flow or likely to be in flow. And it relates very much to satisfaction with life. It relates to things like peak experiences, as Maslow described, when you're so immersed in a moment which brings out the best in us. But it also relates more generally to our satisfaction in life. It's not just about the enjoyment of the moment. That could be part of it. 
but we can also experience flow when we're really facing struggles or challenges, but it's when we tend to face challenges with a particular kind of attitude, finding meaning in them. Certainly, and as we touched on a little bit last week, you know, this is a topic that in many ways is, is different for everyone and everyone experiences flow for different activities and they might even be doing a, a similar activity to someone else but experiencing flow in a different way. It can even be that individual in some ways. And, and yeah, I'm very much looking forward to, I suppose, expanding on all the mechanics of that with you today and, and hopefully people will get a bit of a sense after listening to today's episode what you know even, even flow looks like for them and, and how... And how they've been able to experience flow even in slightly more recent times, which, which have been a little bit more trying. Yes, I like your emphasis on the individual there. One of the things I think is so helpful about how Cheek Set Me High describes flow is that there are certain principles to it that are understandable, but it's very unique and individual, as you're suggesting, in how people might experience it. So it relates to ways of really finding ourselves. It's ways of differentiating ourselves. It's something that I know that you're interested in, individuation. You've had a podcast on individuation about different famous characters and how they got the best out of themselves in different ways, and they did this in quite unique ways. So when we look at flow, we're very much looking at our own individuality and that of other people, as well as still looking at our ways of connecting with each other well. Well, before we go too much further, obviously we've talked about the idea that flow is, you know, it involves a state where you, you don't necessarily feel the passage of time. But let's dig a little bit deeper into it in terms of what actually is flow. Okay, now one of the conditions of flow is we're going to be stretched in some ways. We're going to be challenged in some ways. We'll be making a voluntary effort. So we've got that autonomy or choice. We're choosing what we're doing and it's to achieve something difficult or worthwhile. So you might have some examples later where we talk about sporting events where people are really challenging and testing themselves to achieve something worthwhile, but also there's a match between our skill level and the challenge. For example, if someone's in too demanding a competition, for example, they'll feel overly anxious and feel like they're going to fail. Whereas if we're in a situation that doesn't test our skills to the level of our ability, we'll tend to be bored. So there's a match between our skills and the challenge. And so when we're involved in this activity, we're completely absorbed. We're so immersed in it that we're acting in a way which is very spontaneous and automatic based on these skills that we've built up. And we become, if you like, merged with our actions in some ways. We might not even have a sense of ourselves as being that separate from the action that we're performing. For example, if it's a skillful sporting event or something like that. So actually, I wonder if you might even have an example of something like that where someone's immersed and barely aware of the passage of time, stretched to their limits. Well, I think, look, to be honest, you know, just about every elite sport, you, you get a real sense of that. But the thing that really comes to mind for me there is tennis players, for example, and, and just how often you hear tennis players talk about almost being in a, a meditative state on court. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure they wouldn't necessarily be able to feel too much the passage of time. I reckon Rafael Nadal, if he was feeling the passage of time during his uh, five and a half hour final the other day, he would have been struggling a lot more than he is. But at the same time, you, you look at the tennis players on the court and it involves you know, a lot of frantic movement, a lot of stretching. It's obviously very tactical. There's so much pressure to it. 
but they talk about it as being such a, a relaxing exercise in some ways. And to me, you know, if I was to go into that kind of, you know, furnace of that elite level of tennis, it, I don't think I'd be in much flow, Dad, because I'd just be, you know, thinking about, you know, how terrible I'm doing and all this sort of stuff. But I think in that situation, when their maybe skill level matches the demand that they're facing, it is able to induce a state of flow. Yes, and it could be like those figure skaters in the Olympics, perhaps, seeming somewhat relaxed at a certain level and some level of comfort even, but it's so energetic and so challenging. There's that combination of challenge but grace in a way. And one of the features of that is the person is so focused in the moment. So what's happening? They're managing their attention. A whole lot about flow in any context we look at it, it's about managing our energy and attention. Something really worthwhile to strive for involving a challenge, drawing on our skills, being so focused in the moment and what we're doing and applying those skills that we're not distracted by worries, concerns, frustrations. The person's becoming immersed in what they're doing. And, you know, again, I'll try to make this my last tennis example for today, Dad, because there's a few that could come up. But, uh, you know, the thing that really comes to mind for me there is, is Rafael Nadal and the way that he deals with his drink bottles and his towel and he's so meticulous in the way that they're always placed at all time. Apparently, you know, Rafael Nadal comes from very much a sporting family. His father, I believe, was a soccer coach, football coach. His uncle, obviously, has been widely involved throughout his career. And apparently what the function of those things that Rafael Nadal does, it's not as if he thinks, you know, there's some kind of magical force that's going to make him play badly if his drink bottle's slightly off. But it's while he's on the court, he's essentially trying to take his mind away from the negative thoughts, from the distractions, He's, he's able to use these techniques to just completely place himself, as you say, in that moment. If all he's thinking about at that time is, you know, what way is my drink bottle facing? Well, you can't think about two things at once in terms of you're not then thinking about, ah, I really missed that backhand on that third last point or, you know, I'm not able to execute this as well as I want to. It's just he's almost... He has such trust in the fact that he will go into flow and, and obviously the performance that he has while he's in that state that essentially his whole routine on the court is based around kind of basically inducing more of that flow and, and ensuring that he doesn't get in his own way in a sense. Yes, there's a term that we can use for that kind of activity. It sounds to me like a kind of warm-up. And now we're thinking of it in terms of sport. But people might think of some other challenge they face. It might be public speaking or turning up to a challenging work situation or some demand that the person's facing. And we can go through a certain kind of warm-up before these challenges. It's partly about focusing attention. It's partly about preparing for that. And one of the things that I gained a greater sense of from exploring more this flow concept and reading Csikszentmihalyi's descriptions of flow in different contexts, it helped me appreciate how some of these characteristics that might be more obvious with, for example, a professional tennis player or a figure skater or a remarkable painter is 
There are activities that involve flow that can seem more mundane, but they can be part of our everyday life. They can be things that we do that we really enjoy doing or we choose to do repeatedly or we take on some kind of challenge where we're looking to stretch ourselves in some way or we're looking to achieve some kind of goal or we're looking to do something constructive which absorbs us in a certain way. And when we're involved in that, we persist with it and time passes in a sense, quite unselfconsciously, all of these are flow activities as well, and they all involve this investment of psychic energy or active attention. We're actively focusing our attention to achieve a certain goal. And when we recognise these more general ways that we draw on flow in our everyday life, you don't have to be a professional tennis player or, or a wonderful painter or someone who obviously has such exceptional skills. It's in our own lives, those things that we do that are most worth doing, that engage us and are worth structuring into our lives. Well, it's interesting as you describe that because, you know, one of the things that, that really came to mind to me there is, is that idea of, you know, basically at the start of the pandemic when everyone first went into lockdown, I feel like to a degree... You know, everyone was kind of looking for novel ways to induce flow in terms of, you know, we've spoken about the idea of baking sourdough bread. And, you know, like for myself, it was something I've never done before. And, you know, there was a few steps to it. And actually it wasn't, you know, as straightforward as I maybe wanted it to be. But we got there in the end and there was that kind of sense of satisfaction that came with that. And, and you know, even jigsaws and all this sort of thing. It was almost like in that stage people wanted a, a real sense of flow and so so they were looking to those activities which as you say might be more yeah regular activities that we do come across in our everyday life yes and it's interesting that idea of the sourdough bread wasn't it as a as a common example it's as though we were searching around looking for something which is almost like a one-size-fits-all thing if anyone's kept on baking sourdough bread they're probably a born baker or they probably had certain kind of skills or interests that called for that because the idea is that it's so individualistic isn't it like what's going to turn on one person or engage them will be so different from another and it's a challenge and we had an extra challenge there through the pandemic because we were restricted we couldn't go so far we couldn't catch up with other people as much there are a lot of things that we couldn't do in the same way so I think there's a clue in this as well if people can think of things that they started doing during the pandemic or otherwise they increased doing those things and they kept on doing them for their own sake, not because someone else said that you should, not because it was just it was a work activity and you had to do it. If there are any things that people did through the pandemic which they've willingly chosen to do and they've kept doing, that's a big example of flow because it's hard to imagine how something could have been so motivating and engaging if it didn't involve those individually appealing characteristics that go with flow. I think that's so true, Dad, and, and there's something that I suppose comes to mind for me here which I think is worth touching on, and that's, I suppose, the difference between, for example, being in a flow state and, you know, maybe being on social media and, you know, there can be times when you sort of find yourself on social media. It's sort of like, just where did that, you know, last 15 minutes, half an hour? I've been on TikTok, Dad, for a long time because there was one time where I lost a lot of time on TikTok one day and I was just like, my word, this is addictive sort of thing. But, but uh, I digress. But I suppose, yeah, what are some of the differences then? Because to me, it really seems that, you know, like with social media, like, yes, there's that element of, time passing by maybe tv watching tv is a little bit like this there's still an element of time passing by 
but it maybe doesn't quite have that element of flow in terms of having that, I suppose, aspect of stretching ourselves as well. Yes. Now, and as I go through maybe some of the conditions of flow, these are some of the things that Csikszent Mihai described as some of the characteristics of flow, how you can gauge it and look to develop it. But if people have in mind an example of something that they have kept doing or developed further through the pandemic, one example of course, for us is doing this podcast, which we started at the beginning of the pandemic and we've kept on doing. And so for us, we would relate to some of these conditions, for example, but people will have their own examples in mind and just see if those activities that you've kept engaging in and felt immersed in and somewhat satisfied by, did they have these qualities? First of eight qualities, you've got a chance to complete a task so in other words, there's some kind of purpose, if you like. There's some kind of task or purpose. Secondly, you can concentrate on what you're doing. So you've got a purpose, you can concentrate on it. In other words, there's some kind of intention there. And going with that, the task has clear goals. It's not just vague or anything goes. There's a clear goal. Another one, there's a chance for immediate feedback. Again, you can get a sense of whether you're achieving that goal or not. Now, in a sporting competition, that's obvious, but it also could be if you're painting or writing something, you'll have some sense of the quality of that. Another thing, it involves a kind of deep and effortless involvement that while you're engaged in it, it removes worries and frustration. In other words, you're focused in the moment, you're immersed in it. Another one, you allow self-control over your actions. Again, it's an autonomous kind of thing. You're directing it yourself. But also, your concern for yourself disappears. In other words, you're not so self-conscious. But funnily enough, afterwards, you might have an even stronger sense of yourself after completing the task, partly because it's really affirming about what you really enjoy doing. And the other thing, your sense of duration of time. Your sense of time is altered. Typically in terms of feeling as though there's been a passage of time and it's as though it's gone quicker than you would have expected. But there are times in flow also that time can really slow down for those micro moments as well. So there's an alteration in your perception of time. So the thing that all of these things do together, chance to complete a task, concentrate on what you're doing, clear goals, feedback, deep involvement, self-control over your actions, your concern for yourself disappears, alteration your duration of time there's a deep enjoyment that comes with that not always noticing it at the time because you might be so immersed in what you're doing that you're not necessarily feeling such obvious pleasure at the time but afterwards you recognize there's something so rewarding about that that it's worth spending energy and attention to feel that so there'd be a bit of a dopamine hit that would go with that well, it's, it's a fascinating list, and we'll put that list up on the episode page for today, which you can get at psychspiels.com.au. But I think one of the things that I really like about that list, Dad, is that it seems to me that however anyone is going, they can look at that list and potentially think of a task that kind of works for them. Because as you were going through that, there was a couple of things that stood out in terms of, you know, I, I remember a time when, you know, I basically was feeling you know really rubbish and depressed dad and we I came home and we had a bit of a chat and one of the things that we had a chat about was this idea of like behavioral activation sort of thing and we've even spoke about it on the podcast before in terms of you know doing even a small 
task or, or doing something small when you're not feeling great and then saying, you know, at least I did that. Well, it seems to me that there could be situations where, you know, just within yourself, you might not necessarily be feeling great to the point where, you know, you don't necessarily need to put a whole lot of demands on yourself. It's not as if you need to go and have a, you know, elite game of tennis to be able to induce flow from that list of eight things. It could be something as as simple as, you know, tidying your bedroom or mowing the lawn and, you know, that idea of immediate feedback where you can you can really look at it and go, hold on, I've, I've actually done this now. You know, my room's tidier. The lawn, you know, even if it's this half of the lawn, it's like, well, at least that half of the lawn looks good sort of thing. And then you can take that right through to maybe someone's in a situation where they want a bit more of a challenge. Maybe they're not necessarily feeling as down about themselves and maybe they want to run a half marathon, for example. And, you know, they get onto their Strava app and, and that sort of thing so they can sort of, you know, get your, uh, your, your minutes per kilometre and see how far you've gone and all this sort of stuff. And maybe their feedback is little bit more about challenging themselves in a certain way to be able to I suppose yeah maybe go through yeah an, an extra challenge because they're they're looking for something like that so I suppose to me what, what I like about that list is that it just seems to be applicable for so many people in in so many stages of well-being if that makes sense or, or across the wide spectrum of well-being it's not as if you you have to be you know feeling really good within yourself or at the same time it's not as if you're not going to get anything out of that list if you're you're not feeling great within yourself. So yeah, I, I just really like the way that it does seem to apply to everyone. And, and that, I suppose, point about getting immediate feedback, that gives you a real sense for satisfaction in that case. Yes. And one thing you're highlighting there is so much of well-being is about action. And that's where when people are depressed, for example, often people are getting caught up in a cycle of helplessness, of passivity, of inaction. And in the first place, we've got to get ourselves moving. We've got to get ourselves going. That's partly how we get neuroplasticity. We know that we form new brain cells and connections between them through physical activity. That's where it all starts. But then it's about how we channel that activity and how we direct our attention. And that's where last week we talked about people doing the character strengths. And one of the things that's helpful about that is when we look at our character strengths, so some of the virtues that are best in us, our individual virtues, it might be our sense of humour or it might be prudence or creativity or persistence or zest or spirituality. There's a range of different virtues that we were talking about last time as well. Now, if we're acting on our top strengths, our most developed characteristics, that's when we're likely to get the best out of ourselves. So flow is partly acting on our skills and matching our skills to the challenges, but it's also about, well, focusing on what we're on about as people. And that partly relates to our personalities and our different kind of characteristics. And so that's where when we talk about flow in terms of leisure, when we talk about flow in terms of work, we're looking at people being engaged, people finding things to do that are meaningful to them, people achieving things. So we're getting back to that PERMA model of positive psychology. And also you tend to feel good, the positive affect while you're doing it. And when we're doing things that are worthwhile for the benefit of other people, that also helps our relationships. So flow and finding things that are worthwhile, bringing out the best in ourselves, doing things for the benefit of other people as well, that covers all the bases of PERMA. 
But yeah, those characteristics we talked about earlier on, including the feedback, including having an intention, a purpose, having some kind of challenge, yes, those conditions, they're relevant, whether it be in work, leisure, and it starts with activity, putting in energy into what we're doing. Well, it's so true. And, and you know, that is why we went through the character strengths, I think, last week in terms of they can be such a good guide towards our own kind of model for flow in, in some ways. And I heard a great example of, of something which, uh, for me, I suppose, gives a real good example of, of how we can be individualistic in our own way of how we experience flow and all this sort of thing. And been lucky enough to do the uh, Geelong Cats AFLW podcast this year, Dad, which has been so good to be involved with. And, you know, the girls just speak absolutely brilliantly and, and you know, none more so than young Darcy Maloney, who, who was on actually the most uh, most recent episode when we are recording this. And, you know, she's only 19 years old and, you know, kicked the winning goal on the weekend, I might add. Uh, I saw that. Yeah. First win for the season absolutely. too. Absolutely. Yes. And, and so she was on the podcast at, at the other day as a guest and, and it was a fascinating insight, really. One of the, you know, most wise kind of 19-year-olds I've heard speak for a long time. But she was talking about over the pre-season this year, one of the things that she's worked on with the coaches is really improving her enjoyment in footy. Uh. And one of the things that she's done to do that is to recognise that one of the things that she loves about footy is recognising her teammates' strengths. And in many ways, shaping her game to bring out the strengths in her teammates. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a, you know, footy nuffy dad. Like, I love the game, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't profess to have an elite understanding of it or any of this sort of stuff. And thinking to myself, in some ways, I've almost had this idea that, you know, everyone was a bit of a wannabe Dusty Martin in some ways, in terms of everyone wanted to sort of take the game by the scruff of the neck and, Obviously, it's a team game, but at the same time, it's almost an individual performance that you put forward. But at the same time, what that suggested to me, what Darcy was saying, that, hold on, there's people that have a completely different approach to this game of footy, which, you know, it it can seem so kind of simple and straightforward in terms of obviously the tactics and, and this sort of thing. They're the same for everyone. But in saying that, Obviously, once you get to that level and, and, you know, once you do, I think, learn a lot more about yourself as a player and all this sort of stuff, you're able to leverage some of these differences and and really just stood out for me that Darcy was able to say, hold on, yeah, like, you know, I actually just don't enjoy footy as much when I'm just out there thinking about myself and, you know, basically only... Uh, reflecting on my own performance and that sort of in isolation from my teammates and all this sort of thing. And and to me, you know, it's the, there's so many character strengths that would stand out for that. But like you talk about someone with leadership and, and just the degree to which she obviously feels invested in her teammates' performance and this sort of stuff. Now, I'm sure there's others out there who, who don't have that in quite the same way but they would have other ways that they experience flow. And, and maybe it's, for example, something like bravery where they can sort of, you know, be a little bit more, in, I dare I say individualistic, but that idea of sort of taking the game by the scruff of the neck, that whole Michael Jordan thing of, you know, well, you know, he basically said this about me and I took it personally sort of thing. So it just suggests to me that example that, you know, like footy is, is, is one game and you would expect that, you know, people in many ways experience it similarly from each other, but... Obviously, yeah, like Darcy is someone and there would be so many other countless examples who draw on their character strengths in a game of footy like that. Yes, actually, working with a football team a number of years ago, it struck me how individuals had a different focus within it. Like some people say with persistence as a strength, they would actually enjoy the arduous pre-season training, which to other people might be a pain. 
Someone else, clearly a key thing that they did was focusing on courage and you'd show the way they'd show that on the field. Others, it would be leadership or citizenship. And funnily enough, the leadership team tended to have a combination of those two strengths in their top five. And you'd see why they'd get in the leadership team, having that kind of ethos. But yes, it comes down to finding our own individual purpose or priorities or take on things and then putting the active energy into that. And getting back to this notion of actively focusing on some kind of purpose, that's where I think it's really interesting if you look at how frequently people experience flow in their work compared to leisure. Like if you ask most people, oh, what would you most like doing with your time? People are usually motivated to say, well, uh, leisure, and they'll talk about leisure activities rather than talking about work activities. But interestingly, when you look at studies that compare the proportion of time that people are in flow, work to leisure, and one study, I believe it was in America, but no doubt it would apply here, at work, people would experience flow just over 50% of the time. In leisure, 18% of the time. That's different from what often what we would think. We'd often think, oh, look, I'll be happiest and all the rest of it when I've got time off. But in fact, often we might get caught up in our leisure being a kind of passive leisure. Just doing whatever fills in the time, watching TV. As you said, it could be frittering away time on TikTok or time social media or something which isn't otherwise actively engaging our attention so much. It's a bit of a time filler. So that gets across the idea that it's generally in situations where we're stretched in some way where we're focused and we're developing skills, we're exercising skills as well as developing them as we go, it's going to be more in that kind of situation that we're going to experience flow. And so that means that we have to maybe put a little bit of extra mindful effort in our leisure lives to think of how are we going to get that return for time rather than just passively letting the time pass, vegetating or something like that. Well, it's interesting as you were talking about that there, it came to mind that saying that you you know you hear it a little bit, but it's that idea of, you know, do something that you love doing and you'll never work a day in your life. And I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to that. I think there's potentially situations you might even love a job and there's going to be certain things that you don't love about that job and all this sort of stuff. But what I think that does highlight is you need flow in your job in certain ways. And, and if you don't have maybe a job where where you are experiencing that quite regularly, then it is going to be, you know, maybe a little bit more of a struggle for you than, than someone who would be in that situation experiencing flow. Yes, and so I suppose that's where if we focus on that work side of things, it does make such a difference if we do have work which matches our skills and interests, gives us a bit of autonomy in certain ways, because if we've got that active, engaged work focus... Often people are going to be feeling, they use terms like strong, active, creative, concentrated, motivated, as opposed to if someone's engaged in something more passively, including passive leisure, they're going to maybe feel more dull, weak, dissatisfied. So one of the main things that Csikszentmihalyi emphasises as well, is given that we're going to be spending probably more than half our waking hours or about half our waking hours in work, we might as well choose work that gives us an opportunity for flow. 
And that means something that we can really feel we can invest our time and energy in, focus attention on, and basically it'll have those characteristics that we talked about flow. If we've got work that provides the opportunity for flow, it'll tend to have opportunity and challenge so we can focus and become lost in that. As he describes, it helps if aspects of our job are somewhat like a game because a game will have variety, it'll have challenges, it'll have goals, we'll be getting feedback. So what he recommended is if we look at redesigning aspects of our job, redesigning our work so it's got these aspects that are like a game. Intention, purpose, specific goal, get feedback, skills matchability, that kind of thing. If we think of those characteristics and can we adapt aspects of our roles? That might even mean if we're in a job or a job role where we find that some things don't suit us but other things that might suit us more, we might even renegotiate with an employer or colleagues of being able to adapt our roles to some extent. But even within a similar role, we can often find ways that draw out the best in us to help achieve a goal in our work settings. Well, it's something that you hear, you know, it's, it's a bit of a buzzword actually at the moment, Dad, that I see, you know, you see it in blogs, you see it in newsletters, on Twitter, all this sort of stuff, but it's that idea of, you know, like yeah, even as you said, yeah, living with intention. Like you sort of see it come up time and time again and, and to be honest, quite often I think a lot of the people talking about it don't even really know 100% what it means. But to me, like, like this is such a core part of that, like for work or for leisure, all this sort of stuff. Like, as you say, if we have a way to actively pursue things that are, you know, in our wheelhouse, for, for lack of a better term, and, and then we have a framework to also reflect on them with, it seems that it's almost like we're, we're coming at things from both sides in terms of we're really, uh, we're really going to be kind of scratching our own personal itches in that situation. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. And certainly intention is where flow always starts. It's that purpose, it's that intention, because it's about focusing our attention. And to focus our attention, we need to have some kind of intention. But also we can be in situations that challenge us in some ways. For example, with COVID, it doesn't mean that, oh, I've got an intention that things in my work will go like this and so we expect it to go that way. Lots of people had to adapt to working from home. In psychology, we had to adapt to working with telehealth, so Zoom sessions rather than face-to-face contact, when most of us as therapists would have previously thought that that face-to-face contact was an almost essential part of doing effective therapy. So there's a whole change. Now, the thing is, if circumstances change, sometimes we can adapt We can rethink or reformulate how we work to still refine what our intentions are, our goals, still have feedback about how that's working. So that's one of the things about flow as well. It doesn't mean we have to have everything working for us well. There's also that capacity to adapt and change and maybe shift our game plan, so to speak. But still we've got that initial intention and a degree of autonomy in how we follow through with that. Well, I think that's a great point, Dad, and, and particularly about recognising maybe the control that we do have in certain situations where even if it's just a, a subtle change to make that we can change something about it. But I suppose one thing that really comes to mind for me there is, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who, like as you say, many people would have had to work from home throughout the pandemic, 
But there also would have been many people who lost their jobs and wouldn't be able to rely on, on work for that structure for as many things. And you know, I haven't found it, you know, living by myself, Dad. It was sort of, you know, living with intention is, is pretty hard when you're sort of, you know, 120 days into a lockdown of doing the, the same thing in many ways. And, and I think that applies to our, our leisure time a little bit in some ways too, in terms of, you know, like I, I know at times where I've had weekends, for example, where if I hadn't planned to do as much on the weekend, you just don't do it you almost need to take as you say that active approach even with your leisure time it's almost like scheduling in your leisure time as 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 yeah like a, an actual activity if that makes sense but but I wonder if you could speak to that idea a little bit of look there, there's going to be some people particularly over the last little while who aren't able to adapt their work as much or or maybe they yeah don't have that structure in place and they have to be a little bit more self-sufficient with where they where they induce flow from Yes, it's a real challenge, the lack of structure in life. And so that's where people are going to be more prone to also boredom, depression, all the rest of it. So as Csikszentmihalyi said, a particular challenge that we all have is also solitude. So the thing about solitude is there's not the distractions or the focus with other people or things that you're doing in usual routines with others. So if we look at our experience outside of work, family roles, other kind of social roles that we might have as well, how do we manage our time then? And as Csikszentmihalyi said, that the normal state of mind is chaos. If we don't have any structure there, or nothing's particularly directing our attention or drawing our attention, then our minds are going to tend to turn to where the problems are to what we're frustrated about, if we experience some kind of pain or difficulty or concern or some worry about the future. And so that's the thing that we sometimes might call monkey mind or when our mind becomes drawn to the things that might trouble us. This is one of the advantages of having some kind of intention and focus and structure in our lives because it helps get away from that kind of chaos. But the thing is, how are we going to use our time, for example, in solitude? And one of the things, for example, if people have lost their job or they're restricted from what they're doing or many of us are having to start to get used to time at home in lockdown as, as we had to face, then again, it still comes down to those kind of principles. Are there ways that we can engage ourselves in some kind of physical activity? Some kind of physical activity where there's also some kind of goal or purpose. Well, we do have a sense of feedback something that actually helps us apply our skills in some way and concentrate. So, for example, uh, one friend really enjoys woodworking, so he's always going to have something to do in his shed outside. Other people might enjoy things related to fitness and exercise that way and having a focus that way. If we've got an interest in an absorbing hobby, that can help. If we're part of a group following through a certain kind of interest, that can help. There's something that really helps that way with structuring our time. But in addition, there are going to be periods of time where we're not engaged in a group or usual routine and where part of the question is how are we going to choose to fill in our time? We don't always have to be 100% engaged all the time, of course, but it's going to make a difference if we're frequently involved in things that stretch us a bit. Like if we're reading, are we reading for the purpose of learning something? If we're spending time with friends, are we just 
passively spending that time or we're looking to engage in a certain kind of conversation that's relevant to other people and all the rest of it as well. We can invest different levels of effort in the things that we do. Watching a movie, we can invest a different level of effort in how we draw out the themes of the movie, for example, compared to passively watching it. So it's partly about this mindful investment of effort. That's one of the main challenges. And then what I wanted to add is, so the way that you describe that there, you know, completely on board with it, completely agree with it sort of thing. But, you know, it really strikes me that there's going to be times when, you know, basically the demands in our life lead us to, you know, be maybe thinking these negative thoughts, to maybe be reflecting on our situation in a negative way. And, you know, using the, the Rafael Nadal technique of sort of lining up the drink bottles and distracting yourself for a second, you know, that's not going to work in a whole lot of situations where maybe there's trauma involved or maybe there is a, you know, like a serious chaotic situation situation going on at the time what I wonder about in that situation is you know should we just then resign ourselves to not feeling any flow in those situations in terms of look it's probably more about looking at it in terms of burnout in terms of our demands maybe outstripping our resources and making sure that we've got ways of balancing those things out in certain ways but I suppose yeah is there a situation where we have to resign ourselves to not feeling any flow because there isn't a balance with that demand and it's almost like we're stretching ourselves but we're stretching ourselves so far that it's not conducive to feeling flow. Okay so this is coming back to the idea of how we deal with adversity for example how we deal with trauma and so we're getting to some fundamental principles in psychology like we've talked about before with CBT cognitive behavioral therapy. It comes partly from the stoic philosophers like Epictetus who emphasized basically that people are not disturbed by things but by their view of them. Now, the tricky thing about this is that's all very well, but what if you've experienced repeated childhood sexual abuse? What if people have lost their job and, well, maybe become paraplegic in an accident or something like that? Are there circumstances that are so dreadful that then we can't expect ourselves to experience flow further? Well, again, I like the way that Csikszentmihalyi put some of this as well when he described how a number of people facing trauma or adversity are going to think, look, I'm going to have to cut my losses here. This is so bad what's happening in my life. I can at least try and hang on to what's left. I can just see if I can still maybe have some social contact. I might have, for example, lost a leg. Well, don't expect to work again, but I'll be able to at least maybe still enjoy my social leisure in some ways. In a sense, cut your losses that way. But what Csikszentmihalyi highlighted is some people in the most dreadful adversity, like, for example, Viktor Frankl, who was in a concentration camp, have had ways of looking at these really bleak circumstances and seeing it as some kind of challenge that they can do something about. There's some way they can manage their experience. And so the challenge becomes, how do we focus our attention in that situation? And I would have thought that it's only normal that at first people would go through grief and loss and adjustment. Like if people face objectively bleak, terrible circumstances, it's fair enough to have a very significant reaction to that, grief acknowledging our losses, like if someone becomes paraplegic. But strikingly, a lot of people, for example, who lose their legs, return to their usual level of well-being, their modal level of well-being, down the track. Now, how can that be? 
well, people aren't just, in a sense, giving into the helplessness of it. People then, if they manage that weight, they're redefining their goals in some way. They're adapting to the setbacks and they're finding some way around that. I think Dylan Alcott is an example of that, who I know you greatly respect. Yeah, certainly. And he even goes as far as to talk about, you know, he speaks about, I love my disability, is what he says. And, you know, I imagine there'd be, there'd be certain things about his disability that he doesn't love in some ways, but clearly he's been able to reposition it, something that overall does, you know, provide him with much flow, I'm sure, and with the experiences that go with that, puts him in a situation of flow a lot, I would imagine. Yes, and so one thing with that is if we think of what defines flow, he will have had an intention and had clear goals and purpose. And for him, he emphasises it's not just about winning gold medals in tennis or open competitions or something like that. He's really interested in helping other people with disability and shifting the culture to allow more opportunities for people with disability. That's a much larger overarching goal, if you like, which people might call an ultimate purpose. And again, with flow, we can look at that. Where do we find meaning and purpose in life? And as Csikszentmihalyi emphasised, a lot of people who face challenges like blindness, paraplegia, in some ways they respond by developing other more clear, even urgent goals to help overcome their challenges, to work around the adversity. And this came up as a theme with another Stoic philosopher, Seneca. And he had this expression, the good things that come from prosperity are to be wished. The good things that come from adversity are to be admired. Acknowledging the Dylan Alcott's of the world, the people who do turn things around after a challenge and they transform their adversity like, I love my disability, that idea, they transform the adversity into some kind of focus, bring in their skills, bring in their strengths, getting feedback for how they're going, taking on a challenge, matching that to their maybe uncommon skills in that example, but still a lot of it is the intention and looking to benefit other people. So that's a classic example of what we would call the hero's journey as well that we've talked about before, where people might face very dark challenges and feel lost but then find some way through that and then bring back some boon to the wider community. Well, it strikes me that there's such a level of acceptance that seems to come with, with that way of going about things in terms of seeing things in, in a new and challenging way. And, and it was funny, Dad, as you were describing that there, what really came to mind for me. And, and I think this highlights the degree to which it can be a, a hero's journey that, that can change your life in many ways. But, you know, I remember hearing about the, uh, the Thai cave rescue where those, I think it was about you know, 10 young boys, a soccer team full of young boys in Thailand got stuck down in a cave for, you know, it was over a week, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, it was a really risky operation to get them out and all this sort of thing. But apparently one of the things that came out from that was that their coach who, you know, obviously he was a he was a young boys soccer coach. He would have had some sort of interest in, you know, coaching young boys and having a bit of responsibility and all this sort of thing. But at the same time, he took it upon himself to really help those boys through that situation. 
And to me, it was almost as if he, yeah, really took it upon himself to say, hold on, you know, we're down here now. But at the same time, I I could probably comprehend the situation. I could comprehend the danger a little bit more than these boys can who, you know, they're probably just going, oh, you know, we're we're in a cave, not really, you know, recognising the exact degree to which they're in danger. But he's probably there going, oh, you know, this is a real situation here. But instead, he almost rose above that kind of fear and took it upon himself to be that level of stability for the boys and I think he was leading them in prayer and yeah basically helping them through that time and took on a real leadership role but now I believe many of the young boys are Buddhist monks and I believe he himself is a Buddhist monk now and so it was almost in going through that challenge finding what I imagine was a level of flow for for him in terms of being able to call upon his resources and his strengths and something that he would have gained satisfaction out of doing through being able to get them all through, well, that, you know, really changed his life because uh, I guess he sort of went, well, like that maybe is my purpose after this. And and so it does strike me that if that level of acceptance is there and, oh, geez, it, it'd seem so much easier said than done to me, you know, coming from coming from where I'm sitting in, in you know, my position sort of thing. But at the same time, it does seem that when that acceptance is there, as you say, people like Viktor Frankl, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a prisoner in the Gulag, the Soviet Gulag, decided to write a book about his experience. You know, people like that, it's almost, yeah, when they can accept things, move through it to the point of recognising where they can still find flow and and challenge themselves and, and, and rise above whatever situation they're in, then that's some of, as you say about adversity, some of the most admirable people I've ever come across anyway. Yes, that Thai cave rescue and how you describe that people responded to it, that really is a good way of contrasting those different aspects of flow. The more general one where, as you mentioned, these boys, the coach, a number of them have become Buddhist monks. Now, that implies a certain focus on meaning, purpose and meaning in life. And it really helps if we have that. And as Csikszentmihalyi described that, he said some people have what he described as an autotelic personality autotelic auto self telic purpose find a purpose from within we've talked about that in the past how the greeks called it daemon the romans called it genius we might refer to it as destiny the notion of people having a particular direction in life that suits them now it really helps if people find that meaning and purpose and you can understand how when people were at such adversity that it looked almost certain that they might lose their lives if then people find they're able to live well gosh how that would concentrate your mind on what's important and what's not and a number of people describe that after trauma actually a number of people after they've been through post-traumatic stress nearly lost their lives in different ways faced enormous challenges sometimes say how they become a bit frustrated or bored with trivial small talk or people just worried about petty things because they've come to revise their sense of what's important and what's not. And they often describe they don't regret having had their trauma, even if they nearly lost their life or became severely injured, because they look back and they think that's given their life extra meaning because they're more focused, they're more aware on what they want to spend their energy on. And another example of flow I'm reminded of when you mentioned the Thai cave rescue is those divers what level of skill they had to develop, how many years they had worked on developing their craft, their medical, biological understanding, 
to test themselves out like never before in these underground water-filled caves where they where they didn't know exactly how far they had to go. They weren't sure if the particular technology was going to work. And talk about feedback, they got every one of those boys out. So what a remarkable, I imagine, peak experience that would have been for many of those people. Talk about skills matched to challenges, the highest level of skills, the highest level of challenge. So we often think of flow in that way in moments or experiences like the champion sports people, for example. But also like we've highlighted in this podcast today that it's also more generally in life. It is about living with intention. It's how we focus our energy and a good guide for that is being aware of our character strengths. Are we drawing on those character strengths in our work, in our leisure, in our interactions with other people? Because that's likely to be as helpful a guide as anything. Well, I think that's just such important and relevant information, Dad. And, and you know, I think you know, I can only speak from my own experience in some ways. But at the same time, I think he's a young guy. It's, you know, I, again, not to, not to discount anyone else's experience, but I can speak to this as a young guy sort of thing in terms of, you know, I think maybe in your early 20s and, and you know, even sort of beyond that in, in many situations, there can be such almost pressure to, you know, know what you want to kind of do with your life and where you want to spend your time and where you see yourself and all this sort of stuff. And, and I think so many of the questions are framed around the real big end of the question in terms of, you know, yeah, w- what do you want to do with your life? What is your purpose? What's your meaning in life and all this sort of stuff? But... To me, it's like, oh, that, that's so daunting. It's, it's how would anyone know that? And, you know, you talk to, you know, 45-year-old people all the time and make that joke, oh, when, when I grow up, <laughs> I want to... And it's all like, <laughs> like, that is funny. But it's also, like, I think there's a bit of that in terms of... It's not as if, you know, people wake up one day and they just have this real just sense of this is exactly what I want to do. I'm sure for some people it is like that. But for many others, I think if we think about it in terms of things like, well, what are the activities that induce the most amount of flow for me what are the strengths that I can call upon within myself where I do receive that level of satisfaction where if I'm doing an activity that I'm stretched in a certain way you know I really have that that sense of well-being afterwards after having completed the task drawing upon all of my strengths and to me it just seems a a much more manageable way in in some ways of attacking some of these massive issues because my word wouldn't it be hard to have such a such a succinct answer for for everything at a young age but at the same time I think it's a lot easier to think of things in terms of what are my strengths what are the activities that I get a real sense of pleasure from what have I felt stretched in doing in the past and and have come through that and felt that I've been able to to put myself together in a more developed way, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, I just think it's a a nice way to think about some of this stuff. Yeah, look, I really like the way you describe that. And I think that you're describing some of the generational challenges of young people today, which relates to some of the finer points of flow to wind up with today. And one of those is the notion of freedom. We think that freedom is good. But actually, it can be harder to find flow with more freedom. Because if you've got the choice of like 300 different careers or work roles that haven't been invented yet, like your roles largely as a podcaster, that didn't exist as a job 20 years ago. There's so much more freedom and choice these days, if you like, but that also spells more uncertainty. More choice is more uncertainty. 
Now, with uncertainty, it can be harder to focus. When it's harder to focus, it can make it more difficult to, again, have the energy to invest in things as well. So that's one thing. Extra choices does not necessarily make it easier. Sometimes when we limit or contain our choices, then at least we can focus on how can I apply my energy to this. So in the meantime, I'll settle for this goal or this work role or I'll be doing this at this transition point in my life and I'll invest in that. I'll allow something else to emerge. And there's something else that you're kind of getting at there too, which is expectations. Expectations can rob us of flow. If, for example, we have all these choices and we think, oh, I want to be the very best I can be at just exactly the right kind of you know, work role for me, wow, that puts on pressure. That's likely to rob us of flow rather than help us find flow. So sometimes it's a matter of also containing our expectations. And the world is more complex these days, including with the pandemic. It does mean that there are adjustments and restrictions at times and uncertainty in predicting the future, more uncertainty than before as well. So I think these things make it harder to find flow generally and probably especially so for young people. So I think like you're saying there, if people have at least some practical working focus in the meantime, hey, in the meantime, I know I get enjoyment about this. I know I'm that kind of person. I know this is a value that's important to me. I know I feel better engaging in that particular leisure activity that takes effort and attention, a bit of work, a bit of effort, rather than, say, passively watching TV. If there are these things that we know about ourselves and look to apply that in some ways, as Csikszentmihalyi says, we have more order in our consciousness. And there's more, if you like, intention will focus that goes with that, we're likely to experience more flow. A bit, and, and I wonder if maybe a, a not, not a better, but a different way to think about it in some ways is instead of having just freedom and, you know, having kind of, you know, this ambiguous freedom, whatever that means, maybe the freedom to find flow is almost a better way of looking at it. And, you know, I even look at things like, say, women's sport in recent years and how far that's come on. There was a barrier to those, you know, athletes, people who wanted to be athletes, finding their flow in that area. And so maybe if we look at things like freedom, well, it's about, yeah, maybe equal opportunity to do things and this stuff. But at the same time, it's, it's, yeah, like as you say, maybe we can have too much choice in a situation. If we look at it in terms of freedom, well, maybe that's just encouraging more choice, which isn't necessarily going to help us. But if it's the freedom to find our flow in a way, then it is that idea of almost going further into it and going, well, out of all the freedoms that we could have, this is the one that I'm choosing, you know, for these reasons or whatever. I like that. I like that. And sometimes there are guideposts that can help us, and that includes role models. That can be very important, like we were mentioning Dylan Olcott or, or Rafael Nadal or Viktor Frankl. So that can help to have role models. And one role model for me, I'd have to say, is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi himself. And having read 
this book flow if people are interested it's such a worthwhile read it's got so much in it and I got a lot more out of it than I'd anticipated actually one of the things I thought was a little bit amusing to me is I'd probably never been in so much flow for quite some time (laughs) reading is reading his book on flow so it was really well worthwhile if people want to dig deeper into it but there's a saying in our field where you look to stand on the shoulders of giants and certainly Cheek Sent Me High was one of those. And I think this is a lasting kind of theme that sums up so much of what's worthwhile about positive psychology. And so, yeah, we can draw from culture. We can draw from other examples. We can draw from movies. And certainly it's been wonderful to draw from the example of someone like Chick Sent Me High himself. Well, certainly. And yeah, as, as we've both said, you know, Chick Set Me High is a, is a titan of the psychological field, I see. And some of his work on, on creativity as well is, is just absolutely fascinating. So very much recommend his stuff. And, and we'll put up some resources for today's episode, of course, at, at psychspeels.com.au. But thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. It's, it's an interesting one. I, I thought I had some sense of flow with, you know, maybe sport and this sort of thing. But I think there's, there's so many layers to it. There's so much that we can get from it. And I think it really is just a really good way of looking at, at how we can improve our mental health, regardless of where we sit on the spectrum at that time. Yes, and if it's okay to wind up with this, I might wind up with a few questions that Csikszentmihalyi suggested that we might ask ourselves if we're looking to go in a certain direction, like pursue a work direction or a course of study or some major transition. Before we invest in a major goal, we can ask ourselves, is it really what I want to do? Is it something I enjoy doing? Am I likely to enjoy it for the foreseeable future? Is it worth the price to be paid by myself and others to pursue that? Is it worth it? Very worthwhile practical questions that can also help us to differentiate ourselves and integrate ourselves with the community. That's a whole lot of what a good life is on about, having worthwhile goals being ourselves, differentiating ourselves, integrating ourselves with the community. And I think Cheeks at Me High gave us some really practical, worthwhile guidelines for that. 